All right, a little preface here to the scripture reading. I'm going to challenge you this morning. We've been taught in prior sermons that when we're confronted with the word of God, that we are never left in neutral. As surely as the laws of physics are true, and I mean that literally, like gravity and motion, it's just as true that when you hear the word of God, you are either drawn to its teaching or you are moved away from it. Hebrews 4.12 tells us a bit about the nature of God's word. It declares that the word is living and active. And so what you're about to hear is not some inert text that has no effect on us. And so as Christians, my challenge to you is that we prepare to hear it and to receive God's word whenever you sit down to listen to it or to read it, that you be watchful and that you be expectant, be ready for the living and active revelation to confront you, because it will. Ask God to ready your heart to see how he wants you to embrace it, and then be eager, eager, maybe even fearful with a reverent fear, be eager to receive it and be changed by it. For that's how you will be conformed to your Lord, right, to the image of Christ. It's by God's word that you'll be sanctified. Of course, it's possible. It happens more often than we would like to admit, but it's possible for you to only mentally understand the text. There may be a certain level of intelligence required, of course, but you basically, I think, know the English language, and your mind can retain it and maybe even explain later what was said. However, because the, scripture are, because the scriptures are not just a story or an academic text, because they are the living and active message of their author, God, the work of God is necessary for them to have their full effect. In other words, to have the light of God's word go beyond a mere mental understanding so that its meanings and its applications are illuminated to your heart, thereby changing that heart. That can only happen by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, by the way, that is one of the things, albeit a major thing, that's one of the unique characteristics of the Bible that make it different from every other book. Its mysteries are opened up to us by the Holy Spirit. And so again, my challenge to you, and not just this morning, but every time you do this, my challenge is that you prepare, that you expect, and that you obey. Prepare to hear God's word by asking him to ready your heart, like the good soil from our last sermon. Expect that God will have something to say to you, because he does. And then embrace the teaching. Be willing to accept it. In fact, be glad to accept it, like a cold, wet drink on a hot summer's day. Or if you prefer winter, then wrap yourself up in it like a blanket on a cold winter's night. Prepare, expect, and obey. Now let's bow for a brief prayer. Heavenly Father, As we approach your word, your gospel of Mark, we ask that you would do your work in us. Cause those worldly things in our lives which so easily capture our attention. Please cause our interest in them to fade. 
break our desire for them. Speak to our hearts this morning by reading and preaching to us your word so that we ultimately love you more and are made holy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we continue in our look in the Gospel of Mark, we're in chapter 4. Today's scripture is found in your pew Bibles. If you want to use those, it's page, if I got it right, 1557, 1557, if you choose to use your pew Bible. But our video pro up there, thank you very much, is going to have it on the monitors as well. All right, the Word of God, Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has, will be taken away. Amen. That's the holy, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Yeah, indeed. Thank you. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the soils. It was clear from that teaching, at least I hope it was clear, that Jesus tells us that when people hear the word of God, they do not all hear it in the same way. In other words, they receive it differently. Some get more benefit from it, while some get no benefit at all. Why is that? Well, it's because of how you hear it. Jesus has implored his audiences numerous times to listen carefully, to pay attention. In our short five verses under consideration, he actually says this twice. Verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And verse 24, right after that, pay attention to what you hear. What that means is that you are not to listen to God's word ever superficially. And we're not only to not obey the things that we're comfortable, let me rephrase that, we're not only supposed to obey the things that we're comfortable with, indeed not. When Jesus says, if anyone has ears to hear, let them hear, he's saying that such hearing must be marked with an earnestness towards obedience. And all of it, not just what we're comfortable with. The reason, Edgemont, is that some, pe- that some people are changed by the word of God, while others are not, is because of the way they listen, which is they listen in faith. In faith. And that's the very point of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 2, tells us this. For we, <clears throat> for we also... For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they didn't share the faith of those who obeyed. Some had faith, some did not. 
They didn't combine their listening with faith. They did not approach God's word, which is approach God himself. They didn't do that humbly and expectantly. There was no sense in awe at their very creator and what that very creator of theirs was about to say to them. And doing that requires dedication. And it requires a certain right setting of your priorities. I wonder if the Super Bowl, if that was at 11 o'clock instead of 6.30 p.m., would you have still been here in this house of worship a couple weeks ago? Maybe you're not a sports fan, so let me change the example. If hunting season was only for one morning in the winter, let's say a four-hour window this morning, would you be here in the sanctuary among God's assembly, or would you be in the woods enjoying that with your gun? I don't mean to pick on hunters and sports fans, but I think you get my point. If you say that you love God, then what do you love? I submit to you that if you love the Lord, then you will love what he loves. You'll desire to know him, and by such, you will desire his word. You'll enjoy communicating with him in prayer. You'll love those whom he loves, even though those people might be cantankerous, right? They, they might be self-absorbed. Some of those people that Jesus asks you to love might be overconfident. It's a nice way of saying arrogant, easily angered, complainers, downright just irritating. Do you think the enemy of the Jews, right, that social traitor Levi, who also went by Matthew, Do you think that he was an easy man to hang out with, let alone forgive? What about that opportunist, that little short guy in the tree, Zacchaeus, who cheated people out of their money and therefore reduced his neighbor's ability to live well? He stole lifestyle from them. When there wasn't a chicken on their dinner table, they could blame Zacchaeus. And yet Jesus loved him. Just one more thing before we look further at this parable of the lamp. Unlike the nature of eating food, which as you well know is that the more you eat, the less hungry you become. And then when you go for some time without food, you get hungry again. But it's just the opposite with the Bible. One of the paradoxes of God is that when you feed on him, you actually get hungrier for him. You want more of him. Yet when you ignore him, your appetite wanes. It actually goes away. You'll have less desire for God. Another way of saying this is that what you're attracted to, you feast on. Or you can put it the other way. You feast on what you're attracted to. So if you're finding that your heart is a bit cold, or that your prayer life is a a bit stagnant, perhaps all but shut down, then you'll want to evaluate what you're feeding on, right? What's nourishing your soul. In verse 21, Jesus asks a sort of rhetorical question, maybe even one that's purposed to generate a bit of humor. I personally see in scriptures a lot of humor that our Lord intimated in his teaching, in his conversations. I'll let you be the judge of that with this. Verse 21, and he said to them, 
Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Of course not, Jesus. Of course not. Where, where are you going with that? Well, Jesus is trying to help the listening man or woman to see themselves in this illustration. He's using parables of things and agriculture, which they, of course, could relate to, which are not really, however, about things or agriculture. They're about himself and about the people that are listening to him. The various soils in the parable of the sower, that was really about people's, people's hearts. Right? The various kinds of soils are about the various types of hearts. The lamp in this morning's parable is about Jesus. He's the lamp. He is the light. And he says this plainly, by the way, in John 8. There's no parable here. He says it as plainly as can be. He declares of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus' question is really, I said it was rhetorical before, but really here's what he's saying. Is my light, am I who is the lamp, the lamp who is to be shed into men's hearts to reveal the truth to the world, am I to be hidden? Am I to be cloaked under a bed? Of course, the answer to that is no, 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 of course not. And so like all parables, this is a filter that sifts out those who simply had ears from those who had actual ears to hear, right? Ears that would obey. Those who hear an interesting story from those who actually do it. So Jesus, he knows that everyone within the sound of his voice will obviously know that one doesn't light a candle or a lamp and stick it under a bed or a basket. Never mind those things might burn down the house. It doesn't sound too fire safe. But fire safety aside, Jesus' point is that by doing so, the purpose of that light would be negated. There's no sense in lighting a candle and then covering it up. The light will be of no benefit if it's not shined. Unless he, unless his light is exposed from a lamp or a stand, unless it's obvious, those who are in the dark will remain there. And we know that this shining, this revelation, that it will happen because 700 years prior to the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah said this, and it's in chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Who do you think that's pointing to? It's a prophecy, folks. It's telling us that Jesus will be there one day as the Messiah to reveal God's truth in its fullness. And so we fast forward 700 years from Isaiah to what Jesus says in verse 22. It's his way of saying that the light has arrived, that what Isaiah prophesied is now fulfilled. Again, verse 22, Jesus says, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Jesus hasn't come to be hidden under a bed or a bowl. Somehow the light of the world has shown up only to be stuck away somewhere. No. This tells us that it would be wrong to conclude that God has somehow brought his kingdom near 
in the person of Jesus himself for the purpose of concealing the kingdom. But that mystery's revelation still took time to sink in. It may seem obvious to us this morning. But after having been with the Lord for three years, after his death and resurrection, even now, just before the Lord's ascension, the apostles, right, those, those 12 guys, the apostles, they asked him in Acts 1, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? These guys were still expecting some sort of a civil ruler, a military and political savior. They were, in fact, they were looking for the restoration of the throne that was one time, at one time, under King David during Israel's heyday. And they were right to do so, by the way, but they misunderstood the prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which says that the throne of David will be established forever. That's forever. David's throne established forever, right? That's going to come through the Messiah. But they still had ideas that that eternal throne would be an earthly one and not a heavenly one. And so it is today. When you read your Bible or you listen to it preached, it's revealed differently and at different rates of comprehension by people within the same audience. Husband and wife, they can sit side by side. Every Sunday, week in and week out, one believes and the other doesn't believe. Brothers and sisters, They get disunited by the Bible. It divides. They hear the same talks. They read the same biblical texts. They hear the same illustrations. They get the same information downloaded on them. And yet one only hears it while the other believes it and is changed by it. And when verse 22 says that nothing which is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to life, Well, that forecasts the fact that one day, the reality is that one day, who Jesus is will be made clear to everyone. The blinders will be off. The filter will be off. One day they'll see that Jesus, everyone will see that Jesus is king of all. And they'll come to appreciate, and this is hard to swallow, but they come to appreciate that their unbelief is what rightly dooms them to an everlasting hell. That unbelief is the evidence of the just verdict of eternal damnation. So for this very important reality, Jesus says in verses 23 and 24, pay attention. Stop what you're doing and instead do what I tell you. This wasn't new news that Jesus was proclaiming. John the Baptist had heralded that the light was coming into the world and that that light is Jesus who one day was going to reap a harvest. Remember, in last sermon, he sowed the word and some believed. Well, sticking with that agricultural analogy, if you will, one day he's going to harvest those believers unto himself to live in his heavenly kingdom with him forever. Now, here he is teaching, he's doing miracles, he's upsetting the legalistic establishment, not by his personality, of course, but by the very truths of God, because they shed light on men's sins. And it's kind of like roaches, when you turn the light on, they run away. They don't like the light. Many conclude that this teaching, however, is irrelevant 
They say, so what? While others commit their entire lives to this teacher. And so it goes. The filtration system of God is at work. But at harvest time, all will recognize that the one who came as a sower will come back as the harvester. That one day, every eye will see and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Islam, by the way, the second largest religion in the world, Islam has a place for Jesus. They consider him a prophet, a prophet of God. But they find it blasphemy or a blasphemy that a prophet of God would be hanged on a cross. But to the Christian, this is not a mere marginal discussion. The cross is the absolute center of Christianity that distinguishes it from all other religions. Jesus died in place of those who put their faith, their trust in him. He saves those who plead his forgiveness and repent of their sins. And that's one application to this morning's sermon. You only have one application. Take that one away. Jesus died in place of those who put their faith, their trust in him. He saves those who plead his forgiveness and repent of their sins. The Bible's promises, its warnings concerning disobedience and consequences, and its testimonies about Jesus all point us to faith in God. Because it's when we take heed in faith that we then see that God was right all along. We'll agree with him one day. And that's how we get that faith, but that's also how it becomes stronger, by considering carefully those promises and warnings and testimonies. But Edgemont, you can't do that unless you're reading your Bible. You can't do that unless you know this God, unless you're worshiping him, which is why I love the fact that you're here this morning. Verse 24, Jesus, he advances his thoughts on listening and considering what you hear with the implication that because when you do this, the measure you use will be applied to you. In other words, it's what I said at the beginning of the sermon. You'll get out of it what you put into it. In fact, you'll get more out of it than what you put into it, and you'll get less out of it if you don't put it into it. When you feed on the word of God, you will want more of it and to be strengthened to receive more of it. More truth, more peace, more maturity, more understanding and patience, ultimately more love. But if you ignore God's word as a major staple of your daily spiritual diet, you're doing great harm to yourself. You may not see it, it's incrementally damaging, But one day you'll wake up and you'll see that you've done great harm to yourself because you're never neutral with regards to these things. If you don't apply God's word to your life, then you are measuring the importance of what feeds you by the things that work against your good. Elements or morsels of spiritual food 
that you eat and digest. They'll either build you up, right? They'll make your spirit stronger with health, or you'll get a disease from it. It'll tear you down. Now, the Bible, it's full of life's vitamins and nutrients. It's, it's got filet and salmon and vegetables. And I love sauces. It has the most delicious sauces to make those things taste even better. And while the things of the world, they're just mere Twinkies. I don't have anything against Twinkies, but it's a good analogy. Sugar, empty calories that might relieve your hunger in the moment, but that'll do nothing over the long run except to destroy you. Now I ask you, what Twinkies do you have in your life that you think you are called to maybe put aside, maybe repent of? The way of salvation is through the person and the work of Jesus. Now the fact that he's God, right? Deity, God, that's the person. He's perfect. He's sinless. And the fact that he's obeyed all of God's law on our behalf and then died in that obedience and perfection, that's the work part. And so salvation comes by the work and the person of Jesus. But the influences that God gives to us so that we rightly live in that salvation are called gracious means. Those are ways that God uses to grow us up in Christ. Things like prayer. The Bible. Suffering. Fellowship. And the Lord's Supper. Communion. These are all means whereby God has chosen to accomplish his purposes in the lives of those who listen. So, don't neglect them. By these means, we come to faith, and by these means, we grow in faith. We become more like Jesus, more sanctified. That's the fancy word for becoming more like Jesus, more holy. If our response to those means, if our use of them is casual or indifferent, then they will prove to have no ultimate value in our lives. But when the measure which is what verse 24 is referring to, when the measure of our responses or our responses like the individual, right, that person in Psalm 1 who delights in the law of God and who meditates it all the time, day and night, then he'll be like a tree planted by flowing rivers, right, water that causes that tree to bear fruit in its season. I close with this, this comment on verse 25, which may be summarized simply as, use it or lose it. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, just like the body that tries to get its nutrients from Twinkies, that body's muscles will atrophy. They'll lose mass and they'll lose their strength the body will be diminished. That body's organs will eventually not function well. The sight and the hearing and its brain's ability, they'll die. But as with the physical laws of nature, says Jesus, so go spiritual laws. People who sit under the word of God and treat it only as an intellectual stimulation 
only perhaps as an emotional boost or a, a sort of psychotherapy that helps them understand what they should do or not do, somehow to give them advice to better themselves, these people are never changed. Never. There's no power in that. That's not a living and active word. They sit in churches for hundreds, perhaps thousands of sermons. But they're never changed. The promise in verse 25 is that whoever has will be given more. And as I've already said, this is because obedience and faith yields a hunger for more. And it enables you to ingest more, strengthens you. But in that same verse is a warning that whoever ignores these means will lose them. Because it's only by those means of grace that grace is provided. So in a very real sense, that person who ignores the means of grace has declared to God that they don't want him. And that's the truth of the matter. They don't want him. And so God gives them what they want. He lets them ignore his means of grace. Because according to that person, the demands are too high. They're too hard, God. And to their peril, their hearts get hardened even more. Even what little they might have goes away. So whatever, <clears throat> whatever the state of your heart is this morning, at this moment, don't let it get harder. Arrest the calcification. Apply the word to your life. Pray to your God, your creator, by the way, pray to your God who wants so much to engage with you. And by faith, hear him. He won't let you down. By faith, hear him and do what he says. For in that process, you'll see him more fully for who he is. And one day, you'll be brought into that harvest, right? You'll be harvested as one whom he has planted, right? He did that. He planted you. He nurtured you. He watered you. He disciplined you. He caused you to suffer, to grow you up a little bit. And he loved you to be brought into his kingdom forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the Bible is your true word available to us. But more so, Father, we thank you that your spirit makes that Bible work in our lives. It, it shows us how to live well. And God, it shows us also how to die well. All to your glory. All of it. May we as your people come to it with humility and with an excitement, even with a type of reverent fear that it speaks to us. And that our response, even by your power, that our response would please you. In Jesus' name, amen.